and you're listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast. It is brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. Today, we are talking to Alexis Braun Marks, university archivist at Eastern Michigan University. And we're having a great conversation today about the important role that archivists play. And we are kind of clearing away all the misconceptions about what this profession entails. Uh, We talk a lot about this interconnected uh, realm of institutions like GLAM is the acronym we use, uh, galleries, libraries, archives, and museums. So what do archivists do? And what is it like to be an archivist right now in this tremendously uh, unprecedented, uh, uncertain time in history. Well, we're going to talk about that. Alexis Braun Marks has been um, a self-described uh, history nerd her whole life, and we talk about that. We talk about how she came to Michigan, and she actually was working at the Charles H. Wright Museum in Detroit for uh, about three years, but then went over to Ypsilanti, to Eastern Michigan's campus, about 11 years ago. And we're going to be talking about what she does. The Eastern Michigan University Archives is there to manage the information resources that have been created by university faculty, staff, students, and administrators. But it's really only kind of recently, especially with the arrival of Alexis in town, and by town I mean Ipsy, that the work and the mission of the EMU Archives has started to expand and evolve, but also start to really focus. And we talk about that. We talk about that intermingled relationship between the history of a campus, of a school, and the history of the city in which it is located. So we're talking about that. We're talking about how her job resembles a bit of librarianship as well. This is Alexis Braun Marks coming to us from Ypsilanti on the campus of Eastern Michigan University. Let's just start right there. Uh, what does an archivist do? Of course, I want to get into how you got into this line of work, and but I want to just talk about the basics. Uh, probably a boring conversation for you, but a uh, an excitingly nerdy conversation for me. Tell me all about it. Sure. So there's this idea that archivists live in a basement surrounded by stacks of dusty paper. That was my um, idea, right? Yes. Yep. That's how we're portrayed in all movies, Um, you know, up in the attic, down in the basement, surrounded by things. I think that the ultimate goal for most archivists is that we are the keepers, right? Not the gatekeepers, because I think that's a really important misrepresentation of the field. Mm But our goal is to really collect, preserve, and make accessible the historical record. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there's a lot of people that take issue with what archivists have done in the past, right? That most of what has found its way into the historical record is pale, male, and stale, Um, (laughs) right? But I think that's been changing a lot over the past few decades. And it's certainly something that I pay a lot of attention to in terms of what we're collecting at Eastern, the stories that we're collecting, how we're collecting the stories. So, yeah, well, there's misconceptions about folks who work in a library, too. And, you know, they're, they're presumed to be people who enjoy 
uh, quiet and uh, are introverts and love to read all day, even though that's not what our what our <laughs> job is. And, you know, even even though that sounds pleasant to some people, it's not exactly what attracted me to to libraries. What attracted me to libraries was that there were so many activities going on inside the building under the roof and everyone from the community was interacting. And that was magical to me. What was magical to you about uh, historical archives? And maybe tell us about how you got into it and your 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 journey. I know you're at the uh, Charles H. Wright Museum too. So tell us all about that, how you got to where you are now at Eastern. It's kind of embarrassing because in my deepest soul, I too am a history nerd. I grew up in Minnesota and in Minnesota, the National History Day program is huge. Oh, yeah. And so it's sort of this social studies enrichment activity that students sixth through 12th grade can do. And so I did that every year I could. And it was amazing. And I did all sorts of research at the Minnesota Historical Society, at University of Minnesota undergraduate library, spent hours combing through microfilm. Meanwhile, then, meanwhile, notably, other kids were out at the arcade, skateboarding or going to the movies. <laughs> I was doing that too. <laughs> but, and so I, you know, I went to college and I wasn't a history major. For whatever reason, I just decided that I wanted to do something different. But the last class I took my senior year was a history on our college and we spent the entire seminar in the archives working with historical documents and then I returned back to the Minnesota Historical Society and worked with the National History Day program and I did that for about three years and I worked with archivists and librarians and museum professionals and I was in the classroom working with students and school librarians and teachers. And there was something so powerful about being able to connect students to that one thing that just like blew open their project, right? Because students, they would, there was a theme every year, but they would get to be the makers of like they could take whatever they were interested in and sort of develop this project, right? So it was never like everybody has to do a project on Gettysburg. It was like the topic this year is geography. Pick something that's interesting to you, right? So anyway, so I did that for three years and it was so wonderful and I loved it. And and then I met a boy and okay. I moved. Uh-huh. Um, um, anyways... So I found myself sort of relocated and at loose ends. And I thought, well, I loved being in the classroom. Maybe I'll go back and get my teaching degree. And for a variety of reasons, that didn't pan out. And then I was like, well, maybe I'll go back and I'll be a school librarian. I really liked being in in that position. So I applied to library school. Excellent. And it was at orientation where I sat down next to my now mentor, Rick Pfeiffer, and was telling him a little bit about like where I had come from and the work I had been doing. And he was like, well, you're taking the intro to archives class, right? And I was like, what are you talking about? He was like, well, you have to take it this fall. Otherwise you can't finish in two years. 
And so the embarrassing part of this story is I spent sixth through 12th grade portion of my undergraduate work three years as a professional at a historical society working with archivists, never knowing that you could be an archivist or that archives were even a thing, you know? And so as soon as I found my way there, sort of fell back into it, everything just sort of like clicked into place. And it was like, oh, of course, this is what I was always supposed to be doing. Oh, yeah. Right. So for me, becoming involved with archives had so little to do with the stuff, right? It wasn't about like, oh, I love being with old diaries or old manuscripts or the Indiana Jones factor. No, none of that. For me, it was always like trying to connect people to the stories for them to sort of reinterpret or reimagine and then to put themselves in that historical context. Right. So that sounds like the library side of it. The you know what I mean? Yeah, I think, though, there is also this misconception that as archivists, we're just like trying to protect everything and we don't want people to come and touch our stuff. Don't touch it. Don't look at it. Don't breathe on it wrong. (laughs) I guess. And for me, and I, I say this in every presentation I give, I am a firm believer in if people can't access your stuff, why are you keeping it? Yeah. Yeah. Why? You know, there's no there's no point to that, right? People need to be able to see the stuff. It makes what you do actually valuable. So you didn't actually verbalize this, but did you do you think you were realizing this unconsciously just how even when you were young and you were putting off skateboarding and arcades and theaters? I know you said that. <laughs> you, like did you realize how kind of quietly important this is? It's not um there isn't really glory in it per se, but you you are making history a bit more tangible to someone. Uh, you're you're helping fill out the story that was a, a that seems to have been dawning on you at least by the time you got to college. How Im- and I mean, and, I- and I don't want to like mythologize this job, but there is this quiet importance to it, right? There's it's not you know what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, yeah. I do, I do because I think that I think most archivists would tell you that there's definitely there's a service element to it and it's not just service to patrons but there's definitely a feeling of at least for me a long lasting impact to the work that I do and that the work that I'm doing now will hopefully outlive me so I, I think there there's definitely and mythology to what we do, right? And like this, I won't call it like, I think that for me, if if I look back on my progression into the field, there is an element of keeping not for the sake of keeping, and there's definitely not preciousness to the work that I do of like, oh, well, I have to keep everything because it's there's a lot of what we do is not keep everything. Right. You're not pack rats. 
So we're, we're not hoarders, right? We're not pack rats, but that's also a really challenging thing for people to understand and wrap their brain around. And I think too, there's in terms of the field, you have to be really comfortable with the discomfort of choice. Mm-hmm. That 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 gets us into this. How you know? And of course, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I I like how the archivist is that melding of library and museum and you know it's not like a museum keeps everything uh as well but i think one of the things that i find most interesting is that there is we're a related field right like you can it's like the glam is the acronym right galleries libraries archives museums and for things that are preserved right but uh from three of those four They deal with things at the item level. You're cataloging books at the item level and you're cataloging objects at the item level. And you're sort of preserving that so that curators, historians, authors can sort of investigate and tell a story about that. And archivists are doing that too. But if we get, say, the Jeff Milo papers there might be 25 boxes of your stuff. Right. And we're going to catalog the collection, but there's so much that we leave for others to discover. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there, I think, will always be an element of surprise and discovery within archives that you don't always get in museums and libraries. Oh, yeah. I want to get into Eastern Michigan University and, and what you do there, but I I kind of want to bring this topical thing to the fore and kind of ask you for a from-the-gut personal question. Being that history is involved in your profession now, what, is, what has it been like for you over the last, let's say, precisely 19 months of, <laughs> of time where, you know, setting aside keeping yourself and your family safe, obviously through a pandemic, are you realizing that 70 years from now, people could be looking back to this moment in time with the same, a little bit of awe and maybe disbelief that we might've looked back to the the Great Depression? Uh, Do you, have you, has that electricity gone through you as a history nerd that you are an archivist in this unprecedented time that people are gonna be looking back on? Does it, cause it gone through your head and, I don't know, informed uh, your thinking at all? Does it? What I'll tell you is the thing that keeps me up at night is that what I'm doing now will, I'm generating potential historical gaps by either not doing something, by doing something, and that those historical gaps that are being made are ones that I'm going to have to contend with before I retire and or die, whichever comes first. And that's terrifying. What I've thought a lot about personally, at least as it pertains to the last 19 months, is there was definitely, it was like instantaneous, right? Like the lockdown happened, the stay-at-home orders went in place, and it felt like you saw everywhere these archives having almost like these pop-up collection components to them, right? Like send us your stories, document your stories, et cetera, et cetera. 
And the reason why I've thought about this is that when the stay-at-home orders came down, at least for me personally, and based on how the archives at Eastern is staffed, I could not, I had to sort of compartmentalize work and set it on the shelf and deal with my own family. And I I think there's a story in that too. So part of what I'm thinking about right now is how do I document my personal work as an archivist to explain why there was a lag in us starting to collect stories. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Because I don't think that I'm unique in that. I also think there's something really, it feels very much outside of our normal wheelhouse as professionals to be documenting the now. Yeah. Not that we shouldn't be doing it, but it it's not it's not exactly part of our training, right? In terms of documenting the now. Usually we'll reach out to organizations as to collect their stuff that they collected about right. the now. Right. Right. And so yeah, there's just a lot of it feels really unknown. I definitely feel like I sort of missed the mark. I take a lot of I've reflected on that a lot in terms of like, what did I miss? What should we have documented? Did I document enough? Are historians 70 years from now going to come back and be like, what was that woman even doing? Not her job. (laughs) I would propose two things to you. I would propose first and foremost that I'm sure there's a lot of archivists that thought that too. And I think it's worth considering that we were all a little bit psychologically paralyzed and we went into survival mode for such a long period of time but this also accentuates that line between maybe i don't want to make a blanket statement here but archivists aren't specifically historians even though you are history leave that to the historian or the journalist who wants to cover the now the historian who wants to write a fancy book and sell the book they can do the stuff in the now right you know, I think that don't I think you, that's that's part of one of like the professional misconceptions, right. right? Is that archivists are historians. And I think I will often say, like, I am not a curator, right? I am not a historian. My job is to provide you access to the raw primary sources upon which you can build mm-hmm. your historical fill in the blank. Right. Right. That's why I keep saying you're closer to the library-ish than you mm-hmm. are to that in terms of being the connector to the information that you have available. Let's get into, I guess, first tell me how and when you got to, to Ypsilanti in Eastern Michigan and just, you know, tell us about that campus. It's oft, often like kind of the underdoggy campus. There's those big old schools in East Lansing and Ann Arbor that everyone always talks about. But I love Eastern and tell me about large. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Tell us about the Eagles. That's right. So I joined the faculty at Eastern in 2011. I had been at the Charles Wright Museum for three years as their archivist. And then my family grew. And as much as I 
hated to leave the Wright Museum because their collections are amazing. And the mission of that museum, I think, is so important. And I didn't feel like my work there was done. But life intervened. And it led me to the opportunity at Eastern. And I think what I've found, so I'm I am not a Michigan native. We've been in Michigan since 2007. And I think it's so interesting because I recall when we first moved here, one of my classmates had grown up in Ann Arbor and was actually one of the youngest city council persons ever elected and was one of the first graduating students of community high school in Ann Arbor. And so I was like, oh, Sonia, where should I move? Do we move to Ann Arbor or do we move to Ypsilanti? She was like, Alexis, the why is silent. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, so like this, this mythology of Ipsy is sort of loomed large even before we moved to Michigan. And I guess what I've found since coming to Eastern is that it is such an amazing institution and community. And I don't know that I appreciated the impact that the institution has had locally, nationally, internationally, because we are so often overshadowed by the flagship institutions of the state. Right. It's been really wonderful to kind of learn more about Eastern as a place, physically as a place, the culture of the place, and to be able to do that. I feel like I'm oftentimes doing it in real time with other members of our community because I'm learning because I'm not an Eastern alum, because I'm not from Michigan, I'm also learning about the institution as other people are learning about the institution. And so they'll come and they'll ask a question about, you know, what was the campus like in the 1920s? And so we're discovering together. But what's wonderful, at least what I've found in the work that I'm doing at Eastern is that as my tenure progresses, I get to be the one who's like, did you know And then like their minds are just blown and they're like, what? I can't believe that that was ever. That's the fun fun trivia side of of that. Well, there's the fun trivia side of it. And then there's also just the ability to course correct people's perception of our institution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's. It's not just people outside of Eastern, it's people inside Eastern as well. Here's fun trivia for people at home. I believe that the Bruce T. Halley Holly Library is named after uh, someone who was actually a student and lived on campus in the dorms. You never know what'll happen. It's true. Bruce Holly, founder of Discount Tires. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things that is so interesting about and a lot of this started with sort of investigating like who buildings on campus were named for and eastern's a really interesting institution in that we have very very few buildings on campus that are named for individuals that were never on faculty so like the holly library is one but he was an alum Mm -hmm. 
The only other, I'm going to totally misspeak here. I'm so terrified of getting caught in like a... Oh, no, this was never supposed to be a quiz. It was just a chat. I know. Um, Everybody, give her a pass. Everybody, give her a pass. Thank you. It's a podcast. Uh, So Starkweather is one Mm -hmm. named for benefactor Marion Starkweather. Briggs Hall. Briggs had been the owner of the Detroit Tigers and the Bruce Holly. Otherwise, every other building on campus has like a really intense connection to Eastern, right? Taught on faculty, president of the university, whatever it is. So I say all of that to say in investigating who Bruce Holly was, to me, he epitomizes the best that Eastern has to offer which is second opportunity is to non-traditional students who are seeking opportunity. He started, more or less flunked out, went and served in the Korean War, came back on the GI Bill, finished his degree, founded an amazingly successful company, and then found a way to give back. That's awesome. And that, to me, is the story of Eastern of people finding their way to us in really non-traditional ways to achieve whatever vision it is they have for themselves. Another, this is barely related, but a very heartening uh, little bit of history is that when I read about how and when the Bruce T. Hawley Library was uh, what came about is that the student body actually demanded a better, bigger library, uh, which is very encouraging when any young person says, we want a library. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think that's also, to me, it also is reflective of the nature of the students at Eastern, like that the power of connection and the power of student demands, right? Like when students can coordinate and articulate what it is that they want, that the university nine times out of 10 will deliver. And it's it wasn't just getting a bigger, better library. It mm-hmm. was forming a Black Studies program in the late 1960s and having more Black faculty and staff or allowing there to be a place for students to congregate. We had one of the very first student unions on a campus of our size and type. So yeah, I think that's, it's just been part of the fabric of Eastern. Sounds like you like this school. I'm picking up on that. Uh, tell me about, tell me about, I guess what the, not to, I, I guess it, it wouldn't be too useful to like dwell in operations of 2019, but do you have any expectations of what it looks like going forward when it specifically comes to what, you know, the the winter semester and beyond students, how they can um, access you, access the archives uh, and, you know, talk about how that might, what that might look like. And then I do want to get into your digitized collection too, before I let you go too. So there's, tell me about that. Well, I mean, I think that it, it kind of goes back to my earlier statement of like, if people can't access your stuff, why do you have it? Yeah. It's and, trickier now, though. It's, you know, it's trickier. Right. And I, I think, though, you know, we've made, I'm going to stop here and say that when we compare ourselves 
to, you know, the quote unquote peer institutions, we are tiny but mighty, right? We are an extremely small staff, but we have been able to accomplish so much in the 10 years that I've been with the archives. And so, and part of that is capitalizing on partnerships. I have a wonderful library colleague who runs our institutional repository, and she is a historian by training. And so when I was like, why can't we start using the institutional repository for all of our digital clicks? And she was like, sure, that sounds great. Great. So it's trying to find who your partners are and tapping into their soft spots Mm -hmm. and first loves. Mm -hmm. What we've done in terms of creating greater access and as we look forward to the change in how classes are being delivered since the onset of the pandemic with more and more online learning, hybrid environments, just because there are so many safeguards that have been put in place to keep the students and the faculty and staff at Eastern safe. We've been able to actually continue providing a lot of our services because so much of our content is already digitized. Excellent. I think there there were a lot of repositories that have just recently started to have researchers back on site. As soon as we were able to have people in the building, we could we had people in the building. Excellent. Um, we've been, you know, we're by appointment only, but that's more more due to the fact that we have a year and a half of a backlog and such a small staff will accommodate just about anybody who reaches out to us and asks to see materials that aren't already digitized, but we're working hard to get the stuff that's waiting on the shelves Mm -hmm. processed so that people can access it. That's great. Um, That's great. I think that even... Does that answer your question? It does, especially that you've digitized a lot. And, you know, I feel like it's a question I should have asked almost immediately, but here we are answering it towards the end of the podcast. First of all, I think that if I'm not mistaken, even though 2020 feels like a lost year, that was the EMU archives 50th anniversary, I think, of when it was founded. I think it goes back to 1970. How did I miss that? I think you need to have a a party. (laughs) I think you need to have a belated party. But I think we do need to have a belated party. It's uh, definitely have a belated party. But tell me, like, when I read about the history of the archives, was the focus at first to preserve only university history? Has that expanded? Do you do local history? Do you do all history? What we talked about how these students can access it, especially more digitally now. But what are some of the cool things that you are archiving? The archives itself is very loosely. Like the idea for creating a university archives sort of came out of the 150th anniversary of the institution. There was a faculty member, Egbert Isbell, whose name is amazing. Indeed. um, Who was writing a history on the university and interviewing all of these faculty members who had been sort of instrumental in growing the university from a four-year teacher training school to, or a two-year teacher training school to a four-year teacher training school to really like this comprehensive public university. 
and recognizing that so many of these stories were being lost. So when the archives was quote unquote founded, and I use that in quotations, it was to document university history, but I don't know that they had really thought through what that meant to comprehensively document university history. There was definitely out of our 50 years of history as an a unit on campus, I would say at least four decades of that, we were being managed by very well-meaning, very well-intentioned individuals who did not have the training or the support of the university to really do the work that needed to be done. And I don't I want to be very careful because I think everybody was doing the best work that they could with the tools that they had at their disposal. You know, when I came in, there was a lot of materials that we had collected that were Ipsy focused, but none of them were particularly unique. It was like lots of clippings files and subject files, but nothing like the records of the bookstore or businesses on Cross Street. Most of that material found its way to the Ypsilanti Historical Society. We've, the university archives, at least for the last 10 years, has really tried to identify what we have already, which is 90 plus percent university history. We have some collections that have come to us by way of institutional affiliation, but no other reason, right? So like Janice Terry, who did a lot of work with the Arab American community in Dearborn, she helped facilitate the transfer of the Arab American University Graduate Organization or the AAUG. So when their organization folded and they were really like a policy organization around Arab issues, internationally and nationally, all of those papers came to the university archives. So we have some collections like that, or like the Motown collection that we have came because it was right when Barry Gordy moved to California and Esther stayed in Detroit. And I think as the incredibly astute businesswoman that she was when she founded Hitsville, identified that there she did not have the capacity to keep all of the imprints that were being created by all of like the additional labels that Motown had. And so we became a depository for that collection. The majority of what we have is university focused. And then we have some of these outside collections. I think what we've started to recognize though, is that the work that our students our faculty and our staff, because of the way we approach pedagogy of it being so hands-on, applicable, tangible learning, that there are elements of Eastern out in the community. It's trying to start identifying those instances and helping to document those instances, whether that's we're the depository for that or we're working with an organization like the Ypsilanti District Library or the Ypsilanti Historical Society to help facilitate that. 
you know, those are the types of areas that we're looking to start filling out a little bit more. Oh yeah. That makes sense. Absolutely. I wouldn't it be in the, wouldn't it kind of be inevitable that the history of the city that surrounds a campus and the history of the campus become intertwined. So Yeah, and I think I think that it has been that way. And I, I think that there may have been this impression that I did not recognize the rat's nest <laughs> for lack of a better term, in terms of like how intertwined Ipsy and Eastern were, right? When I first came to the university. Um, and it I'm gonna say it's not that I didn't understand how important that quote unquote town gown relationship was, but the reality was is that the documents we had in our collection did not reflect that. We may have faculty papers of, I don't know, I can't think of anybody off the top of my head right now, but let's say who is incredibly important in their church community. Mm-hmm. Or in their business community, they were part of Qantas or the Rotary or whatever it was. Those things aren't in their papers. For us, it's trying to identify where those connections are and then identify ways that we can be sort of rounding out the historical record. And so a lot of the initiatives that we're doing right now are surrounding things like oral histories and working more closely with our history department and the historic preservation program to identify ways that we can be out in the community, providing the community with the skills they need to document their stories. That sounds like the perfect setup for the Airy. Yay! Talk, tell me, you are already <laughs> half describing the Airy. What is the Airy? So the Airy is our mobile oral history booth. When it was conceptualized back in 2018, was going to be the Eagle's Nest, right? Because we're the Eagles, and the Airy just sounds better than it's the a Eagle's nest. nest. It is. It's yeah. a nest. It's sort of that you know built in often by large birds of prey like eagles, our mascot, mm-hmm. up in high mountaintops for like that large overarching view of a space, right? And place. And so the idea of the mobile oral history booth, and I think we recognize this early on in the, as we started to collect oral histories, is that a number of the individuals that we were trying to connect with had mobility issues, so couldn't come to the archives itself to be recorded, right? And this is 2018, 19, pre-pandemic, where trying to connect anybody on Zoom would have been like, what, wait, what, why? Why would you do that? A lot of this, I will say 99% of this is the brainchild of Matt Jones, who at the time was a graduate student. And I will take 1% of the credit in that I said, sure, you know, when you're in a small shop the way we are and you have students that have really creative ideas and it's part of the benefit of being at Eastern where there is so much Mm hands-on learning. So it's part of the reason why 
we took our former storage space and turned it into our reading room because I had a student do a space utilization report for me. And he was like, what if you did X, Y, Z? And I was like, sure. Right. That sounds great. Right. Right. Um, and that's a lot of what it was with Matt. Right. Is I think I want to write a, my grant proposal for this class on doing a mobile booth. Okay. And it just so happened that in the process of applying for grants and being turned down by granting agencies, because I think this is a the concept of a mobile oral history booth is sort of epitomized by StoryCorps. But to me, the area is so much bigger than that. And I don't think people could really conceptualize what it was that we were proposing, with the exception of our benefactor, who's an emeritus faculty, and was like, well, how much would it take? Because we had sort of like this proof of concept in the grant application, we could give that to her and she could say, oh, is that all? (laughs) So it was being prepared, being in the right place at the right time, The idea with the Aerie and I think sort of how it has evolved is that it's like sitting down at somebody's kitchen table and having a conversation and documenting their story. And I think our approach to oral histories has always been everyone has a story to tell. Everyone. And for too long, especially in the archives at Eastern, it was only a particular story that was being documented and told. And what we're trying to do is change the trajectory of the stories that we're capturing. And so it's not just upper administrators or the few faculty members that served as part of the Paris Peace Conference, right? <laughs> After World War I, it's really trying to help faculty, staff, and alumni understand that they also bring value to the, the fabric of the story of the university. Yes. And, exactly. you know, archives, uh, even museums, libraries, we are all about connecting people, connecting them to information, connecting them to to culture. That's what we want to do. We also want to be accessible. We want to remove the barriers. So that mobile aspect continues that mission. And uh, just, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yes, and I think I'm going to just say the, the benefit of the pandemic coming in and cutting us off at the knees in our process, right? Because we had received the money before the pandemic. We had sort of like this vision of, oh, we'll get a really cute little like Airstream Shasta to toe behind. And then everything stopped. And getting back to your statement of like removing barriers and making our collections accessible, it allowed us to take a beat and say, is this really what we had imagined? Is that really aligned with our values of being a barrier-free or at least minimizing as many barriers as possible to our collections? And the answer was no. Getting 
anybody who has mobility issues into a tiny little camper is almost impossible. And so now the ARI is ADA compliant. It has a back ramp. It has a wider, you know, the ventilation is better, all of those types of things. And so it really allowed us to align all of our programs with our values. That's excellent. Yay. yay to that and yay to archivists. And it's so pretty. Yes. It's so pretty. And, it and it's is, on the go. Could be in a town near you. I know. And it is, I think it's also so great because it's a reflection of our desire to also work collaboratively and to highlight the talent of the organization. And so Ryan Molly from the art department designed the exterior and it's beautiful. And it's just everything about it's awesome. So, and it was so fun to roll it out at homecoming and have people see it. And it's like better than I think either Matt or I ever imagined it being. And I'll just encourage folks, we'll link to it in the show notes, to follow the EMU archives on Instagram, and you can probably see them in action. And uh, Alexis, thanks so much for joining us and talking about all this great stuff. And just, uh, you know, let me dork out on history with you and dork out on on, (laughs) on Ypsilanti and EMU, which is the place that holds a, a fond place in my heart. So thanks for doing everything that you do. Thanks for being here on the show. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. And that was our chat with Alexis Braun Marks University archivist at EMU in Ypsilanti. We're going to be linking to more information about the archives as well as their awesome Instagram account. And it was so great to hear about their latest endeavor, the Airy, a mobile oral history project. And hopefully we will see it in our town, maybe, or in a town near us. I'm just very interested to see where that goes next, but uh, such an excellent uh, expansion of their mission, focusing on those aspects that I mentioned, accessibility, connection, all of that, uh, all that good work of archivists. So glad to have Alexis on the show, and thank you so much again for listening to another episode of A Little Too Quiet. This is the Ferndale Library Podcast brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. If you want to support this podcast, go to ferndalefriends.org. If you want to go a little further with your support of this podcast, you could just tell a friend about it or like us or follow us or leave a comment to help us find more listeners or share this episode to social media. We will be back next week with more. Thanks so much for listening.